We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast brought to you from Tasmania. The show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Go to edgeradio.org.au to hear more about what they're doing and also you can uh, tune in to hear about their fundraising campaign that's currently running. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined today by Dr. Emma Beckett, who is a really inspiring science communicator and researcher in a field that I absolutely adore, which is food science and human nutrition. So I'm really excited to welcome Emma today. Hi, Emma. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming in. So we're going to try something new today, which is where I'm just going to fire questions at you and if you can answer them as quickly as possible. I only have a few, so it's not many, but it's just like... I'll try not to panic. Cool. So what is your favorite food? Oh, definitely donuts. Donuts. Favorite meal, i.e. breakfast, lunch, or dinner? Oh, breakfast, hands down. And your preferred season, summer, spring, winter, autumn? I'm an autumn girl. I like the falling leaves. Very nice. Favorite sports team? Oh, the Newcastle Jets. (laughs) Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? Definitely. Do you prefer cooking or eating? Definitely eating. And last one, coffee or tea? Oh, coffee in the morning, but tea for the rest of the day. I know I'm the same, hey, but I cannot do either without milk. That's my insistence. Yeah, it depends on the mood. I'll, I'll do whatever someone's putting in my hand. So um, Emma is a lecturer in food science and human nutrition and a NHNMRC, so National Health and Medical Research Council, early career um, fellow at the University of Newcastle. And essentially, you work in molecular nutrition. So I'm going to be really interested because it did sa- seem like this year with some of the surveys I completed that you're doing some human behavior stuff too but I wanted to kick off with a really um, important question which is what is nutrition and food science and are they different things yeah so food science and nutrition go together so when we teach them we often teach them together because they're kind of opposite sides of the same coin um, and you know food science is all about you know the science of foods and sometimes it's about processing or storage or the way we treat foods packaging all of that comes into food science the nutrition is really about how our body uses the components in the food. And I call myself a molecular nutritionist, nutritionist as opposed to just a nutritionist or a nutrition scientist because most of my work is focused on that kind of nitty-gritty molecular interactions and how the, the nutrients and the bioactive compounds interact with our DNA and our enzymes and all of the receptors in our bodies and things. So rather than saying, eat this, this will make you healthy, uh, which is what people think nutritionists do, I'm really much more on the science side of things. That's really interesting. So just to like unpack that a little bit further for somebody like me who's quite far removed from that, I do lots of like clinical research, so I'm with people and looking at how they interact with things, where it sounds like you're in the lab with a lab coat on and doing things with maybe cells or compounds to see how they react. Yeah, so most of my research is in the lab with a lab coat on. Um, I do a lot of uh, cell work, so putting stuff on cells to see what happens, but also a lot of human clinical samples as well and looking at the the things we can measure in those clinical samples and how that relates to diet or, or nutritional supplementation and those kinds of things. But we do also do, as you said, survey work where we you know, ask people what they think about things and uh, how the different ways they taste food changes different attitudes and outcomes and all those kinds of things because I guess it all wraps together like the molecular stuff doesn't necessarily 
means so much to people on its own. Um, but when you can wrap that in with how people perceive foods and what they like and what they think, then that becomes really powerful. So when you do stuff in the lab with like, if we've broken it down to a specific molecule and that molecule might be a cell that has a certain function in our body, so it might be typical of something we would find in our gut or uh, in a different part of our body, like the kidney, let's say. Do you then... I don't I want to say treat it, but do you use compounds that are then quite simple too? So like, let's just, for example, say you're interested in vitamin B12. So do you literally give it B12 so you can be really sure about the way that you've controlled your environment rather than giving it a food that has B12 but also has lots of other things in it? Yeah, so that, that's one of the things that we, we definitely do because then we can control the environment. We can look at one cell and we can look at specific doses and then we can measure what changes. So often we're doing those kinds of controlled laboratory cell culture studies to figure out specific mechanisms, different pathways that change, like really getting down to that molecular nitty gritty. And often you'll hear people criticize those kinds of studies and say, but it was done in a test tube. Who knows if that's what's happening when you actually eat those foods? But it's all part of the process and the body of knowledge. So yes, we need studies where then people eat those foods as well or take supplements containing those things. And yes, we need to make sure the doses that we put directly onto gut cells in the lab will match what will be in the gut in real life. But we do need to do those studies so that we can control things because humans are too complicated. They eat too many things and they eat too often and there's too many things going on and we can't possibly lock people in a room and tell them just to eat this one thing so that we can figure out what goes in in their, in their gut. Um, so doing those cell culture studies are part of the body of knowledge to figure it out and they'll never explain something on their own but when we put it together with all the different studies then they will. So would you usually in that instance then start off with something quite simple I have a cell from my gut here are some uh, simplified versions of food elements that I think um, are responsible for gut health and then maybe increase the complexity as you start to understand the way that that's working and that relationship more? Yeah, definitely, because what we're interested in too in food is, and a lot of what, what I study is interaction. So, you know, you might find that one compound does something when it's on its own, but then if you do the same treatment in a high or low uh, situation for another nutrient, you might find you get a completely different activation of receptors or pathways or the receptor you're targeting is no longer expressed or it's upregulated. So yeah, you do start getting more complex so that you can look at the interactions, but you do always need that kind of controlled proof of principle before you can go ahead and start doing that more complicated stuff because otherwise no one's going to give you the money to do that science. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay with us. And in just a moment, we'll be talking more to Emma about the specific types of research she's doing and uh, picking apart those methods a little bit more. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and we've been talking about nutrition and food science, giving you some food facts and talking about the nitty gritty of how researchers actually study this. So I'm joined with Dr. Emma Beckett. My name is Neve Chapman and Emma's from the University of Newcastle. Emma, I really enjoyed already talking about the layers in which we try and do research from um, basic science with a cell and a specific element of our food and then try and add that complexity. When reading up about some of your work recently, I discovered that you've been doing some work on the gut microbiome and chronic disease. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit more about that specifically 
Could you give us a brief explanation? What is the gut microbiome and how does it relate to chronic disease? Yeah, so the gut microbiome is all of the microbes that live within our gut and there's lots of them there. Um, but mostly what we're studying when we study the gut microbiome is the bacteria. The gut bacteria, they're the most abundant of the microbes that we've got down there. Um, and basically there's millions or trillions of them and they're this whole own little ecosystem and when we eat they're eating as well and they're releasing compounds that are then absorbed by our body uh, and change the way different functions occur in the rest of our body so we've got the whole gut every other organ axis now when it comes to studying diseases and we're looking at everything from how our our guts relate to our mental health, to skin health, to oral health, and, and how that all loops back together. So how do you take a research question from being like, I want to look at the gut to like actually, like what projects are you doing at the moment looking at gut? And are you looking at specific cells that you're culturing and making up in the lab? Or are you getting samples from humans? So I got interested in gut health um, because it was on trend. Everyone was doing gut health. And I used to actually, before I was working in nutrition science, I worked in respiratory immunology. Um, and so I knew from my work in respiratory immunology that taste receptors and smell receptors in the lungs are actually involved in the immune responses in the lungs, as well as in the nose and the rest of the respiratory tract. Um, and then I started during my PhD doing a little side project on taste and taste in the mouth and how we perceive food. And then I realized, well, if these taste receptors are in the lung and in the nose, they're probably in the gut as well. And I looked it up and that they were in the gut. Uh, and I thought if they're involved in the immune response in the respiratory tract, then surely they're going to be involved in knowing what bacteria is in the gut because bacteria is bacteria and it's the same signaling compounds, right? And so that's, that's what I decided to, to research. I wanted to look and see if we change the gut bacteria, can we change the taste receptors or if we change the things the gut bacteria is secreting, will that change the taste receptors or the other way around if we uh, have different versions of the taste receptors could that be part of the, the signaling ecosystem that, that modulates, like changes what bacteria we have there in our gut? To like understand what taste receptors are there, how do you do that? How do you measure the taste receptors that are in my like small intestine or colon? Yeah, so super hard to access the, the taste receptors in the gut of a human because that, that's quite an invasive procedure and um, people would have to like you a lot to let you, you in there. <laughs> Don't think I'd be super um, So we do things like, look at the, the genes that people have for these taste receptors and measure their disease outcomes. So we can take a cheek swab, get your DNA, because your DNA is the same all throughout your body, and we can find out whether you have the sensitive versions or the insensitive versions of those receptors, and then we can measure your microbiomes in different parts of your body, whether it's from a fecal sample or from, whether it's from a saliva sample, and see if you measure enough people, can you start seeing patterns in the type of taste receptor someone has and the type of microbiome they have. And then you can do the flip side with cell culture and mouse models where you manipulate the microbiome or change the, the compounds that come from the microbiome that you treat the cells with, and then you can measure the gene expression. Do the taste receptors, do we get more of them switched on or do we get less of them um, and get it switched off? So does that kind of mean that if our taste receptors are linked to the bacteria that are in our gut that the bacteria in our gut are literally changing how we interact with food. Yeah, so we know that already. So we know that um, if you uh, knock out the microbes uh, in the, the guts of the mice, then it changes the uh, receptor expression in their guts and on their tongue. We know that food tastes bad after you have antibiotics. Like we, we've all experienced that. 
Um, and it makes sense from an evolutionary point of view because our taste is all about telling us what to put in our body and protecting us from dangerous things and telling us what we need. And it makes sense that after your microbes have been knocked out that your taste responses would be dampened down because that's going to help you eat all those things that have microbes on it that's going to help you reseed that that microbiome population in your gut so it all makes sense from an evolutionary point of view and now we just have to figure out what it all means in terms of practical outcomes and you know keeping us healthy that's really interesting so have you gone like the step of being like okay I've looked at people's I've taken a swab from their cheek I've looked at what genes they have and how that relates to what test taste receptors they have and then I've taken a poo sample I've looked at what gut microbes they have have you also linked that to you know the types of food that those people are eating Yeah, so that's where it gets really tricky because of the whole cause and effect kind of loop. So there's all kinds of studies already that show that people who have, you know, these particular taste receptor variants will be more or less likely to eat or like these particular foods. And we've done a lot of that ourselves, looking at the really, you know, bitter foods with the healthy uh, compounds and looking at alcohol, which is unhealthy but has bitter compounds, looking at energy intake. So we've done all that and so have lots of other people. But where it becomes complicated is all these things feed back on each other. The foods you're exposed to change the way you taste food and change your microbiome. And figuring out cause and effect of that is all really, really tricky. Um, so sometimes we're looking at what people eat so we can control for that fact in the study and say, well, we know what they ate. And if we factor that in statistically, then this effect we can say is explained by the other things. And sometimes we're looking at that as an outcome in itself and how that's going to be associated with the disease outcome. I think it's interesting that you're looking at this really interesting question from lots of different perspectives, including from like the fundamental level of a single cell and a single compound right up to human complexity. But I'm wondering, how do you go about studying something as difficult as what people eat? Like, how do you even get that information? It's really hard to study what people eat because people often uh, can't remember what they ate or they're not very good at reporting to you what they ate. They over-report the good things and under-report the less ideal things and so there's really no ideal tool uh, to do that because everything's going to be a a snapshot in time whether we uh, look at your habits and say you know this is a food frequency questionnaire how often do you eat this food over the course of a year Uh, or whether we say actually could you write down for us everything you eat for the entire week so generally what we do in nutrition is we use a combination of these methods and we look at the the indicator as a whole So very rarely will we go, well, someone gave me a survey that said they like or they eat a lot of XYZ foods and therefore that means they have a lot of vitamin D in their system. We'll measure the vitamin D levels or we'll ask in lots of different ways about vitamin D containing foods. Um, So if you add all these methods up, then we can kind of get indicators of what people are doing and, you know, dietary patterns and those kinds of things. Um, but we're very rarely able to, you know, pinpoint exactly what people eat all the time because, yeah, people are complicated and, you know, we don't eat the same things all the time. You can really tell if someone's taken a food frequency questionnaire seriously, if they kick turkey once a year, you know, that they're really thinking um, about what they eat then. But even if you do take it seriously, we don't all have, um, you know, the same kind of recall. Some of us are really good at long term and some of us are really good at short term. And so we don't... We don't take any of these things as absolute. We take them all as indicators and then we roll all that back into kind of the body of knowledge so that we can make these decisions based on the sum of the evidence, not just what people tell us they ate. Are there any objective ways that we can like find out someone's nutritional status? Like I know that we can measure 
vitamin B12 from a blood test, for example? Are there other ways that we can find out the quality of someone's diet and their nutritional status from blood samples, urine samples, anything like that? So we can use all kinds of biological markers of nutritional status, but that doesn't necessarily tell us what that person ate. So you can do things, as you said, blood tests, urine tests, saliva tests. We can even do things like use a spectrophotometer on people's skin and look at how much of the the red and orange pigments are circulating in their blood to know how many vegetables they're eating. No way. Now, there's all kinds of things that we can do as markers. Yes way. That's so cool. <laughs> but then those things become complicated as well because just because my folate level is a certain amount, it doesn't mean I ate the same amount of folate as someone who has the same blood folate level as me because each of us will have our own version of the enzymes that, that metabolize folate and each of us will have different sun exposure and sun exposure degrades your folate and we'll both have eaten that folate in different foods and therefore absorbed different amounts of it. We will both have different levels of DNA damage so one of us will be using it up quicker and the other not. So it depends on what our question is, whether a blood biomarker is the right thing to look at or whether knowing what someone ate is what we want to look at. So it's horses for courses and slightly different questions that we sometimes need to factor in together but sometimes need to separate as well. In just a moment, we're going to be talking about what this all means for you, the individual, and policy. So stay tuned for more. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined with Dr. Emma Beckett from the University of Newcastle. We've been well and truly nerding out on nutrition and food science um, because I just love it and Emma's a, a whiz and I love the research that you're doing, Emma. Um, in the final segment of our show, we often try and get to the so what, what does this mean for our individual listener? What does this mean for society? And I suppose a really tough question to ask anybody in nutrition um, but I'd like to ask you, like, what advice would you give to someone who just wants to improve their diet to have better health in the long run? I guess the, the real advice I would give would be stop listening to beautiful people because no matter what you eat, you're not going to look like those supermodels selling those diets and those supplements. Uh, but also small changes. We we have this dichotomy, this this binary of healthy and unhealthy, and we think that if we're not eating the perfect diet, we we're not doing good enough and we might as well not try. And so um, making small changes and not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good is really what I would like people to understand about healthy eating. And the idea that we've got guidelines, guidelines are guidelines, they're not rules. And what you eat needs to fit into your life. You can't um, fit this perfect mold all the time. And it's about the choices we make most of the time, not the choices we make all of the time. I think that's a great pragmatic response and I actually one of my follow-up questions was about dietary guidelines so I think you know I see this a lot in cardiovascular disease prevention that we get hung up on the guidelines say this or the physical activity guidelines say that you have to run 150 minutes a week and if you don't well what's the point point? and it's like well actually if you even just did 10 minutes a day it's a really worthwhile thing to do so I suppose how does uh, someone who's not an expert engage with guidelines in a meaningful way? Yeah, so I think we, we've lost sight a little bit of what the guidelines are and what they're for. And the, the Australian Dietary Guidelines are about to, to start their revision right now. And 
I hope that we end up with a more user-friendly tool at the end of that than what we have now because right now we're in a situation where we say, you know, eat five serves of veg per day and then what's a serve and what's five and what's even a vegetable? Like there's nothing that's simple about that instruction. So, you know, when I'm talking to people about eating more vegetables, I just say eat more vegetables. So, you know, if you're making something like pasta, put some more vegetables in it. Or if you're thinking about a snack, could it be a vegetable instead of something more processed? And and I think moving towards, you know, those actionable points rather than these mystical goals. And, you know, the guidelines come in per day, you know, how many serves per day. And as you said before, you don't eat the same thing every day. No one eats the same thing every day. So we've got to start thinking, you know, 80% of your food should be from this group or, or something like that. And the other day I got challenged on um, mushrooms. Where do mushrooms fit? Mushrooms aren't <laughs> a vegetable or an animal. So they don't fit in any of these categories, but they're a perfectly healthy thing to eat. So hopefully as we revise the guidelines and start getting away from this rules-based thing, we can um, start breaking down some of those barriers. I think that's so right that the complexity is the enemy to how we actually get people to use things. And um if we, I was just recently trying to come up with a questionnaire and I was trying to ask people about their diet and not, not in a hard way. I only wanted to ask them like five to six questions. So pretty tough ask. But when I went to the literature, there were some things that were asked per day, some things per week, some things on occasion. And I was like, oh my Lord, like, and I just wanted to make a scale. So I was like, well, I just need to get this back to like maybe a week. In a week, how much do you eat something? Um, and it's really difficult. And I think as a consumer of food, it's, it's quite complex, but I also wonder what role does the food industry and regulators and policymakers play in helping the things that are just on our shelves support long-term health as well, to help consumers make choices that do support their long-term health goals? Yeah, look, this is a tricky one. And the food industry certainly does play a role in this. And for a long time, we've had in food science and nutrition and in dietetics, this kind of dichotomy, this us versus them, and that it's the food industry versus the people who are interested in health. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily fair. And we need to acknowledge the fact that the food industry is where people get their food from. That, that's where most of us don't live on a farm and don't grow our own food. So we need to find a middle ground where we can, can make a genuine change and a genuine effort. Uh, to, to make foods more healthy. And when you do speak to people in the food industry, um, a lot of people will have this idea that, that food industry people are like, ha, how can we trick people into wanting to buy more of our products and that that's what marketing is. And you speak to them and they're so genuinely, they genuinely think they're, they're doing the right thing and they genuinely you know, believe in their product and its role in the food chain. And so it gets very difficult uh, to work in that space. And I definitely, I do work with the food industry and there's some people who think that that means I've sold out or I'm tainted, but for me, that's where people get their food from. So we need to work with those people and bring that to where the people are. And we also need to remember that processed foods, these unhealthy foods that often get demonized, most of us wouldn't be here without processed foods. They're the reason why population has been able to, to grow like it has. Um, and, you know, they, they play roles in, you know, making food accessible and making food available all year round, making it non-perishable. And any food can ultimately be part of a healthy, balanced diet. So we don't need to all eat fruits and vegetables and fresh whole foods all the time to be healthy, but we need to meet people where they are and where their lifestyles are and help them use these processed foods 
in a way that can be compatible with health. And we need to address those bigger underlying problems. If people are eating, I eat poorly when I'm working too hard. I eat poorly when I haven't slept well. And if we've got these systemic issues that mean people are getting pushed into making those decisions and maybe they don't live near a supermarket and maybe they can't afford a car and maybe they don't have any cooking skills and maybe they don't have any time to cook and, you know, all these things, we need to address those issues rather than just idealise what we want the food industry to be because ultimately that industry is going to be where people get their food from. So we've got to be realistic about it. I agree with you completely. And we had a really interesting episode a little while back about um, food insecurity during the pandemic with um, Dr. Catherine Kent. And she essentially found that the increases in JobKeeper and JobSeeker meant that people were buying much higher quality food as consumers, which I thought was a fascinating before and after because it's like, oh, look, if we give people more money, they buy good things and it goes back into the economy. And I wonder... um, We have lots of philosophical debates at my work about the sugar tax or taxing salt or restricting the amount of fat that can be in a food that's highly processed. And I wonder, like, what do you think of these simple dichotomous, that is bad and we are going to treat it as bad? um, Like, I think that worked quite well for smoking, but the field, the, the goalposts aren't the same, in my opinion. What do you think? Well, yeah, people compare smoking to sugar and salt and everything else all the time, but at the end of the day, we can't stop eating. So, you know, that's not the same thing as smoking. Like smoking is that that can be completely eradicated. Eating cannot be. Um, and, you know, saying that this food is bad, uh, it all depends in the context of the diet. So, you know, I can eat a, a discretionary food if the rest of the time and still be healthy if the rest of the time I am making sensible decisions based on the, the dietary guidelines and the five food groups. So it's a little bit oversimplified. and. Yes, we have evidence from certain countries where certain taxes on certain things have reduced or pushed consumption in different directions, but that's not a controlled experiment. So, you know, to say, oh, Denmark had uh, success with, with a sugar tax or whatever tax it is, you know, Denmark's a socialist society. They support people in a way that we don't. Um, so I'm, I'm really, I know that fairness is one of my triggers and I don't think that it's fair that the wealthy and educated of us make decisions that are going to impact unfairly on the less wealthy and less educated of us. Um, And being able to say, oh, well, if we tax them, they'll stop buying it. I don't think we have the evidence to say that. And we might just be disadvantaging disadvantaged people in in even a a bigger way. Um, So I think it's good intention and certainly you can pick evidence from both sides of the debate that sounds scientifically sound to push you in in one direction or the other but for me that one doesn't quite pass the pub test and we have to remember in food that we've got the the systemic influences but we've also got individual choice and not everyone wants to choose healthy food all the time and that's okay sometimes food is just for joy and we can't make everything about health. Couldn't agree more, say it better myself. Thanks so much, Emma. So you've been listening to That's What I Call Science. My name's Neve Chapman. I've been joined with Dr. Emma Beckett. And today we've been talking about food and nutrition. I hope you've enjoyed the show. That's all for now and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. 
That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.